Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, model, and trans rights activist Gina Rosero. As is often the case with trailblazers, Gina's career includes a series of firsts. In 2014, she was the first trans person to speak about transgender issues on the main stage of the TED conference, a talk that has been viewed nearly 5 million times and translated into 32 different languages. In 2019, she was the first trans-Asian Playboy playmate in the history of the magazine. Now, she's written her first book, a memoir called Horse Barbie. In it, Rosero charts her childhood in the Philippines, where she quickly became a fixture in the transgender pageant circuit before immigrating to America, landing in San Francisco at just 17. We unpack her journey throughout the conversation today, along with the success that followed, as she's now become an outspoken advocate on behalf of transgender youth across the world, especially here in America, where the Trevor Project found that 64% of transgender and non-binary young people reported that they have felt discriminated against in the past year due to their gender identity. We talk about this a little bit at the beginning and end of this episode, but in the first six and a half months of 2023, there have been 558 anti-trans bills introduced across the United States. 
558. Of those 558, 82 have passed with another 365 yet to be voted on. These bills, most of which have been spearheaded in states led by the GOP, have sought to block trans people from receiving basic health care, education, legal recognition, and even in the most severe cases, the right to publicly exist. I'm not going to try to make sense of how or why so many public officials have made it their sad mission statement to dehumanize these groups of people. To spend any more time than I have just now even recognizing those public officials is a colossal waste of your time, my time, and most importantly, our guest time. Because today, we're going to try to tell a different story. From Filipina pageant queen to American model to a transgender advocate whose voice has been heard in the White House, the United Nations, and beyond. This is the story of Gina Rosero. Gina, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you feeling? Uh, this is a long time coming. It is a long time coming. I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> I remember, obviously, pandemic 2020. That's when I started writing the book. And I was listening to Talk Easy a lot. During the pandemic? During my 10,000 steps in the morning. So walk me through your morning. Every day you wake up, you have your breakfast, mm-hmm. and then you immediately go outside and do a 10,000 step Probably walk? Probably an hour and 20 minutes. That's a journey. I'm listening to something. You know, it's it's definite will get you through that. So did this routine start in the pandemic? I think when I started writing the book proposal, that's when it became, I needed, I'm a morning creative. Okay. So 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, that's when I feel like I want to get into something before I start writing. Okay. So... At this point, are, are you entirely sick of my voice or just a little bit sick of my voice? Well, you know, I listen. I, I love this show, but I also listen to other things. But like, yes, I do listen to a lot of this. No, absolutely not. Okay, good. You do have this excellent new memoir out called Horse Barbie. But first, I want to sit with the climate in which this book is being published. Because over the last year, more than 500 anti-trans bills have been introduced in state houses nationwide. Just in the last month, the Florida legislature passed a bill that would prohibit gender transition care for minors and restrict it for adults. We've also seen similar restrictions on education around sexual orientation and gender identity in Florida, where the Don't Say Gay bill was recently expanded to include students through 12th grade. This has become something of an obsession for Florida and the Republican Party at large. As someone who's been publicly in this fight for over a decade now, how have you reckoned with this last year in this country? I'm looking at the book and I think being in this space, like writing this, allowed me to really dig deeper and obviously look back at my past. The immediate sense is obviously it's very annoying and it's freaking upsetting. It's dehumanizing to think about these things. But I also, I'm from the Philippines. I was born and raised in the Philippines. I lived half my life there. We have nothing there, nothing in the sense of political recognitions, legislation. 
So I have a global perspective in this sense, you know, like the differences of what trans politics in the Philippines and trans politics here. But I also know, I think going through this, this process of writing, I went through like this spiritual journey of unpacking so many things. I also grew up in a community where there's so much of intercommunity relationship. Like I have so many trans friends, right, growing up because that's the culture in the Philippines. So when I talk to trans youth here in America, I speak about that, that we have to lean into each other. I mean, we know that policies and laws would not protect us. It's also American media is so obsessed with visibility that once you have visibility, you just have to be visible and you're good. We know that that's not the answer. It's certainly when, you know, growing up in the Philippines, visibility is not the only answer because we have that mainstream visibility. But the deeper sense of that, when I speak about this, I know that they're doing this because they really see the power in what we could bring. I'd like to think about that because in so many ways, I think trans people have the answers to so much of these problems of understanding rigid binary and like what people are saying. And, you know, I, that's the spiritual sense for mm. me. Well, I want to talk about all of that because in the context of where you came from, you have this line, in the Philippines, the trans community has cultural visibility and legal erasure. For people unfamiliar, how do you explain this paradox where you have families that go straight from church to watching trans pageants on TV back at home? Sure, absolutely. I'm, you know, even the word paradox, I don't see it as a paradox. It's just part of this unique, maybe it's a paradox from a, an American sense, from a Western sense, right? For me, in my journey in writing the book, it's more part of this unique cultural blend, right? We have this long history of gender fluidity in the Philippines. We don't have he or she in our language. It's a gender-neutral culture, right? Language. You, you don't have it at all. We don't have it at all. We have the word called sia, which is basically inclusive of everything, of everybody. So we have that with us, and it's very much documented and embedded in a culture that trans people, we have different names to it. We have hundreds of dialects. We have a word called babaylan, asog. There's so many different names to describe someone who's gender fluid or expansive, right? So we have that embedded. And then 1521, Ferdinand Magellan got to the Philippines, colonization started, thus the introduction of Catholic fiesta as part of our calendar throughout the year. I mean, this is 333 years of colonization in the Philippines. And you're reducing it to three minutes on a podcast, which is <laughs> well, beautiful. Context, right? Important context. And, and in 1898, we were the beginning of American colonization in the Philippines. We were sold for 20 million. And then the early 1900s, the introduction of beauty pageants in the Philippines. So take all of that to what it is now. Thus, you have this very uh, vibrant trans beauty pageant culture. So in the Philippines, during fiesta celebration, there's usually like a five-day celebration. On the fifth day of that fiesta celebration, honoring, for example, Fiesta de San Pedro, right? Let's honor St. Peter. On the fifth day, it usually falls on the Sunday. The main event is a transgender beauty pageant. And usually the pageant, especially the street pageant, which where I started my career, you can't be more mainstream than that. And the stage is usually in front of the church. Mm -hmm. The whole family's watching. It's a street party. Holding those two events, the St. Peter celebration and then this pageant, on the same day, these two forces that seem diametrically opposed are sitting right next to each other. You say it's not a paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's a blend. 
And yet, I can't help but stick with that line you had about the legal erasure. How does this Filipino culture fold this community in when they don't recognize them legally? I lived half of my life in the Philippines where we grew up so colonized in our mindset. You know, English was the national language now considered in the Philippines. So the systems in place, both in creating an identification, we're pretty much, I mean, all of our systems of government is based in American way. So you import that in the Philippines during colonization. Let's put an ID, American understanding of gender binary, and the culture in the Philippines that is had this long history of gender fluidity, thus you have that contradiction. Because why would they consider that gender fluidity if the understanding of their binary in the United States is just male-female. Well, it seems like you grew up in a household that helped you make sense of those contradictions because of your mother, you wrote, my mother's love was as steady as the sunshine and I was her shadow. And I want to go to one of your earliest performances in front of her that comes at your aunt's house, I think around the age of 10. Mm -hmm. How does that day play in your head now? I remember feeling the word that would come up to me is soft. I think there's a softness in the way I, I project that movement. Happiness, because it's not just in front of my mom, it's in front of my whole family. I would be dancing, you know, Hawaiian hula dance, tightening my T-shirt and turn it into a bra and, you know, wearing a sarong and just feeling the fluidity and the, the gentleness of that. And I would get tips from my family, actually, and they would, they would encourage me to do that. They would tip you? They would tip me, like, I don't know, 20 pesos. It's a Filipino culture. It's very much a lot of, like, party celebration, you know, obviously the fiesta celebration. And yeah, somehow they saw that and they just gave me tips. But that day when you're performing, you're singing a song. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. You want me to sing right now? Are you singing that? You know what? The floor is yours. <laughs> I don't have any money on me for tips. Well, but... you know, it's a song, obviously, that's classic. So super classic. I mean, like, pearly shells from the ocean, shining in the sun, covering the shore, something like that. And it reminds me of gentle breeze, softness, beauty, and, I don't know, innocence. There's innocence in that performance that I still remember now. You write in the book, I vividly remember watching Mama's face as I danced to the classic Hawaiian song, Pearly Shells, my family singing in unison, my heart tells me that I love you. So in that, where you two make eye contact, she doesn't say anything verbally, but what do you think her face in that moment was communicating? When I was dancing, I was on the ledge, so I'm actually like balancing, right? I was looking down at her and my family. She was smiling at me. Just an acceptance and love that I could feel, you know, from her. And um, it's so vivid to me. And I remember looking down at her and just, I wasn't even thinking of like acceptance. I just knew I was performing and she was looking at me and there was just a softness in that engagement, in that communication, looking at me. You can imagine it's been really, really emotional as I'm doing a lot of interviews to look back on this. Um, you open with what's happening now in the context of what's happening in the culture. And sometimes I think the reason why I'm able to write about these things and, and to do the work that I do is because of that love that started in the family, with my mom particularly, even my dad. 
Oh, we've jumped right in here. I've heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were um, bringing us back to that moment, sitting with that look you two shared, I couldn't help but divorce that moment from what followed a couple years later in October of 1995, because your mom leaves to come to California mm -hmm. to be reunited with her family that had been there since the 80s by way of the 1965 Immigration Act. And I wonder, what is that like to have someone that was sunshine? How do you carry on without that as a teenager? I remember coming home from the airport, my mom leaving, and the night before, she gave me and my sister a hot dog pillow for us to hug. And um, <laughs> even today, I actually, when I sleep, I like my little huggy pillow. So I'm not sure if it's related with that, with that kind of comfort. Maybe so, connected. Maybe connected. <laughs> and um, there was also a promise, you know, a promise that obviously my mom wanted us to have a better life. That's why she's doing this. That's why she's uh, leaving. Somehow I was feeling assured that we will follow her because that's what happened from my aunties, from my mom's side of the family. When they moved here, they have to wait certain years, depending on how the policy immigration change is changing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to wait 20 years. Sometimes you have to wait five years. So yes, maybe at some point I will follow her. Um, gave me a sense of comfort, but certainly a sense of loss of the person who truly gave me that sense of love and guidance and so much joy. That strikes me as a lot to hold at that age. It is a lot going through this. In the Philippines, the notion of an overseas contract worker is very much embedded in our culture. So the thought of mom leaving, again, it doesn't make it any easier, but certainly there were some reference points there that people leave to give their family a better life. And it still is the same right now in the Philippines. Majority, I think 10% of Filipinos is outside the country. So your father then, in her absence, has to step up and really, you know, raise you. At 15, you're introduced to these real-life legends of the pageant world, the ones you had watched on TV growing up with your family. And I thought we'd read a bit from that scene where you auditioned for Tiger Lily, the beauty queen maker, as you write, in your friend's living room. Interesting to call it um, audition. Certainly, I remember <laughs> being so scared of her because they're legends. Anyway, Makeshift so audition, maybe? Okay, let's okay. do it. Let's do it. Um, Walk from me, Tiger Lily commanded. For a moment, I hesitated, adjusting the bikini uncertainly, sensing my anxiety. Tiger Lily extended her arm in a graceful, sweeping motion across the floor to show me where I should perform. Doono, she said, her pouty lips protruding in the same direction as her hand, our classic Filipino cue to follow where your mouth is pointing. I wanted to be a legend like Tiger Lily, what young trans girl wouldn't, but I didn't feel like one. I had a bare face and a short boy's haircut. The tiny pink bikini top stretched on my chest with every nervous breath. But as I looked down at my friend's living room floor, something suddenly clicked. The narrow space between the velvety couches on either side of me seemed to open wide, like the Red Sea parting from Moses, but for a femboy who dreamed of more. Slowly, 
I lifted my bare heels off the ground, finding balance on my toes. I felt the power rise in my calves, my hamstrings holding me upright. With an almost audible snap, my upper body sank with my core, like a lightning strike that makes your hair stand up straight. I was in a different realm now, only three inches higher off the ground than I was standing flat-footed, but miles away from the anxious child I had been a moment ago. In my mind, I was already a professional beauty queen. I stepped forward, my imaginary heels making me feel elegant and polished. Each stride was a glide toward the spotlight made just for me. I was accessing the divine inside me. When I looked up after my performance, I found the corner of Tiger Lily's mouth turned up in a smile. She wasn't looking for technical expertise. She was looking for that, that electricity, that spark. Her half-smile was a sign I had star potential. And just like that, she became not only my manager, but also my trans mother, my mentor, and my friend. You know, she wrote this font. This is her handwriting. The cover of the book. Mm-hmm. When we were making the cover, she does calligraphy. She's an artist. She does drawing. So I remember, you know what? She's the one who gave me the name, Horace Barbie. Let me give her that honor. Where did she get the name from? After meeting Tiger Lily and her entourage on that very first pageant that I joined at 15, I made such a scene. I came out of nowhere. I was 15 years old. I was still in high school. A week prior, I was watching the most recent Super Serena, which is a trans beauty pageant that's shown on TV. I just saw the finals. And a week later, I was competing with all of them. And I beat all of them. I came into the scene and exploded. Who is this bitch? Wait, who said that? Everybody said that. And they started calling me that I look like a horse. As a taunt, as a, you know, as a, to distract me. Because they said, who is that caballo? You know, which is Spanish, Tagalog, meaning for horse. Because of my protruding mouth, my long neck, and my dark skin. So they called me that, and then one pageant, Tiger Lily, saw me on stage. She told me that the way I move, the elegance and the way I carry myself, the way I stand, she told me, you look like a horse Barbie. That's the name, horse Barbie. It's a reclaiming of what I was called. So going from that makeshift audition in imaginary heels to being on stage... Describing it as, it was like the Red Sea parting from Moses, but for a femboy who dreamed of more. Is that how it felt in the moment? When you say imaginary hills, I still do it. It's so magical, I feel. You know, I still remember what that felt like, that living room. I guess as a young femme child, queer person, you know, you have to identify those things in your life to feel better. But certainly there was magic that I feel in that. Because as a young trans kid in the Philippines, you know, we're surrounded by trans beauty pageants. I remember watching my first pageants. Yes, of course you dream of wanting to be like those girls that you see on, on our stage, on our, on our national TV. But I never thought I could actually do that. But to be given that chance in that moment when I was performing for the first time in front of Target Lily and her entourage, in my head, I'm imagining that I would perform in that way somehow for somebody. 
whether it's wrapping my t-shirt to perform in hula dances to, you know, making my shorts shape like a bikini when I'm jumping into a swimming pool. When I would do that, I would feel that I would lift that my heel and access a different realm. Mm-hmm. There's instant elegance. That's why I remember instant elegance, instant femininity that I felt like it was power for me, especially at that age. So you're accessing this instant elegance in front of people that you grew up admiring from afar. Mm-hmm. And then not so long after, those same people, those same performers that you liked, maybe even loved as a kid, started calling you all kinds of names. How did you make sense of that? The pageant culture in the Philippines is intense. It's really intense. It's not also just them. It's also their entourage, their assistants. So it's like the whole system of pageant, right? The, the fans. Even more people. Even more people, like everybody. Like I would arrive at pageants and because I was so... You know, I was 15 and I just started taking hormones. So like without wig, without all the makeup, I look like a young kid, like a 15-year-old high school student. Mm-hmm. I look completely different. And they would say those names in front of me without knowing that I was that person, right? So I knew it's not just coming from them. It's definitely from the fan base. And it's a competition. Around this period, you write, in hindsight, I think I was so successful in part because I was taking the hurt of being teased and turning it into a performance embracing every part of the animal my haters once called me. If they thought horses were ugly, I was going to prove how beautiful they could be. So if this name, Horse Barbie, was a kind of reclamation, what did the work of Tula at age 17, who was the first openly trans model to be photographed in Playboy, what did her work do for you as a teenager? Tula is an icon, Sam is showing me a beautiful picture of Tula in Playboy, gorgeous, in Waterfalls. But I have to say, from the very beginning, her story was already very complicated. Because the way it was shown to us by the news and also Tiger Lily was on a headline. James Bond girl was a boy. Even in that headline, James Bond was something that allowed me to dream. But also very much a caution at the same time. Because at any moment a headline could ruin her career, which what happened to her. So she was introduced to me with that headline. It was both a possibility, but a sense of danger. So when I moved to America, you know, I, I've said before that in the Philippines, trans people are culturally visible, but not politically recognized. So when I moved to America in 2001, 17 years old, I experienced the other way around. Right? I moved here because I was able to change my name and gender marker on my legal documents. That's why you wanted to come. That's why I wanted to come. I didn't originally want to come, but you know, my mom is the one who told me that I could do that here. I was a big pageant diva in the Philippines. I want to stay being a pageant diva. I was making so much money, all of that. But to be able to dream that I could be legally recognized as a woman in my legal documents was a dream that's not possible in the Philippines. It's still not possible to this day. But then when I moved here, the very first representation of trans people that I saw on TV was Jerry Springer. I remember I was seeing the conversations online, trans women particularly that were on the show, that was part of that circuit and circus. What did you see on his show? I saw the manipulation right away. Look at this thing, you know, like you're being buttered up to something positive, but knowing 
what will follow is a complete opposite, you know, dehumanization. That is it a boy? Is it a girl? Look, this girl is with this guy, but the guy didn't know. That was a shock for me. And I didn't know it at the time, but certainly I think the image of that headline that I saw of Tula, what, that was the revelation right there. That it is both a possibility, but also a big caution. And that was the personification of that. So coming to America, first in San Francisco, you didn't know that shows like Jerry Springer used trans people as a kind of punchline. No, that was my very first time seeing it. And obviously there's there are more. And I look back now, I think it's a perfect analogy and representation how America sees gender. How do you mean? Particularly for trans people, trans women specifically, how America sees anybody or anyone that go outside the gender binary. You are made to feel ashamed. You're made to feel that what you're choosing is wrong. So that represented for me how America understands gender and transgender people, that you're someone that should be uh, ashamed of your choices. That was the very beginning of me feeling ashamed of who I am, feeling ashamed that this thing that I had in the Philippines, there's no place for that here. Mm. So for many years, I've forgotten that magic that I was able to access when I would step in my imaginary hills that disappeared. I was working at Macy's in cosmetics department, 17 years old, found my best friend, living life, living the American, whatever, teenage existence. I have completely forgotten this life that I was dreaming of, from pageants to performance. So when you put that life down that you had created for yourself in the Philippines, and you're living in San Francisco with this new kind of shame that wasn't there before, how much did the community inside a place like Divas in the Tenderloin help with that, help balance the scale? I mean, Divas is such an iconic place. Unfortunately, it's closed. But even that, this three-floor structure, the lights, it created the sense of freedom. I would just dance and I don't need to apologize. I'm, I feel desired. I felt wanted. Yes, there might be some elements of being fetishized. There's that. But there's definitely elements of that was the only place where we could truly feel as trans women some people found love, desired, affirmed sensuality. What did you find? I did find affirmation, that's for sure. I did find men who wants to love trans women, spend time with the trans women. I found my way of how I'll get my money to get my surgery. The early beginnings of where I could really walk by a guy and have that very full ownership of my flirtation, the way I communicate with the eyes and the body gesture. It was it was heavenly. I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed feeling so sexy. At a time in my life, very young still, late teens, living with my mother in San Francisco, I wanted to feel affirmed and desired because outside divas, that is not the message. Outside divas, trans people, trans women, you know, I'm going to put you in the sidelines. If I'm dating you, I cannot be seen with you. Even in a place as liberal as San Francisco. That is the trick, right? When this whole label, so it's a liberal place, but it's more complicated than that for sure. So at Divas, I feel I could explore all that and where I could 
just be and not just by myself. Obviously, there's so many of my community of friends that we would meet up there and we would hang out and we just feel a sense of freedom because outside of divas, there's no space for us. After the break, more from author and activist Gina Rosero. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Coming back, did those experiences in that period, when you're working and living and finding your way in San Francisco, did they embolden you to try modeling in New York? 
Not necessarily in that how it's connected. I mean, for me, because I have forgotten that dream of performance and being on stage, it was the feeling that when I could do it, you know, I, at the time, I, I felt that I could do it once I've had my surgery. And right after my surgery, that's when I met this model named Selena Monte, who was a model in New York City. And she told me that I should be a model. And, you know, she had an agency. This is how you do it. And you felt you needed to have the surgery before you could move? Yes. Um, to feel confident, I felt completely in touch with who I am once I've had my surgery. Certainly not the choice that everybody makes. For me, it completed my sense of feeling and connectedness. And once Selena gave me that twinkle of, oh, I could do it again, that's when I made the decision to go to New York City and, and do this. But then knowing that this is in 2005, still a very, very different time, I moved to New York City. I'm looking at Tula's picture here again. Her path became my path. I became a model in New York City. My model agent did not know I was trans. The modeling industry did not know I was trans. Nobody knows about my history, about obviously pageantry. Making that conscious choice, that's what I had to do. You've called this chapter in your life your stealth period. I thought maybe we would read a passage from this section of your story where you're becoming this successful model in which you became, as you write, a blank canvas of a face that makeup artists loved, especially because of my small almond-shaped eyes. In this section, you're kind of explaining the interiority of how you felt in that time. Sure. I could look like 30 different women in the same day. And the affirmation I got in return was incredible. I felt as if I had infiltrated the inner sanctum of the gender binary, like James Bond slinking through a secret underground facility, not in a tuxedo, but in a thousand dollars worth of puffy chiffon. My mission was working. Back on the streets of New York, though, that high faded and my self-doubt surfaced. Because as much as I felt destined to change things, I couldn't escape the mental toll of all my covert maneuvering. I was living two lives at once. Every moment held split realities, even in the most mundane conversations. Around fellow models or my agent, I was constantly on guard. Could they see the pain behind my smiles? Did they notice the fear flashing across my eyes between casual sips of coffee? Sitting across from them, I often felt as if they could peer into me, as if they could feel my longing to be seen as I was. But I was too good at hiding for them to notice. When I was writing my book, this is the section of my life that I tackled first, because I felt like this moment in my life was the most difficult. Obviously, writing, it would be, I think, the most complicated for me. Writing this book was my process to figure out really what happened because I haven't really fully processed when I made the decision to come out and share my story. I never processed what was the in-between. And um, I remember feeling always so exhausted, having to juggle so many stories, editing everything that I have to say to one person, having to always analyze what this person is to me, what box am I going to put you, and how I'm going to manage that relationship that we have. It's the constant maneuvering. I think now it makes sense why I love spy genres, because I felt like I was a spy. I didn't know at the time, but certainly 
I have to protect my cover. The story that I have to share to another person I'm, I'm speaking to, I couldn't have relationships. I couldn't date. It was exhausting to always have those multiple realities I have to balance. You said that in writing this, it was your way of figuring out what happened. But now that you've written about it, how do you make sense of it? There's a sense of like, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do at the time. But writing about it now, there's a sense of healing on acknowledging how much I put myself into in, in the pursuit of, of a dream. And um, there's a sense of, I have, in, depending on who I'm talking to, I have to be a certain way. But depending on who I'm talking to, if it's, you know, a guy who just wants something out of me, I could also have fun and flirt and nobody knows, you know, who I am. I could embody that part of who I am as well and have the best time, enjoy what a young 21-year-old fashion model do, you know, party, hang out, and go to work. But when I'm by myself, when I'm having the conversation with myself, I could feel like I could get lost because of all these things that I have to manage, the stories that I have to edit all the time, that I felt like Horace Barbie is like a spirit that I could have that conversation with me to just keep sane, to keep my sanity, because it was a lot. It was exhausting. By the time you get to 2014 and you've had nearly a decade of success in this industry, did you come forward in that TED Talk because you were just tired of being tired? I needed to have those many conversations with Horse Barbie spirit or that spirit that could keep me sane. I would almost like I could remember like whispering to something or, or some whatever direction that one day I want to be seen as I am, that I want to come out and, and maybe I could truly be myself. I never thought that when is that perfect timing? When will I do that? I got really, really sick. Um, I had um, I had eczema all over my body that became too much. Um, it was all over my body. It took over my my scalp. Um, and at some point, I was at my dermatologist's office, and she was like, "We could give you as much medication, but you should check in emotionally, psychologically, what is going on." And um, I think the truth was really what wanting to come out of me and try to listen to that for the very first time and follow what that was. It's almost like this truth was right in front of me. I, I can't hide it anymore. You cannot continue doing this. I, I was struggling in the manifestation of that stress of close to a decade of living these two lives, you know, took its toll. So on the TED Talk stage in March of 2014, you decide to give in to what your body is saying and begin to tell one story that is your life. Why don't uh, we take a look at that? For the last nine years, some of my neighbors, some of my friends, colleagues, even my agent did not know about my history. I think in mystery, this is called a reveal. Here is mine. I was assigned boy at birth based on the appearance of my genitalia. 
I remember when I was five years old in the Philippines, walking around our house. I would always wear this T-shirt in my head, and my mom asked me, "How come you always wear that T-shirt in your head?" I said, "Mom, this is my hair. I'm a girl." <laughs> I knew then how to self-identify. Gender has always been considered a fact, immutable, but we now know. It's actually more fluid, complex, and mysterious. Because of my success, I never had the courage to share my story. Not because I thought what I am is wrong, but because how the world treats those of us who wish to break free. How did that feel? I mean, first the process to get even just to get there. I think it's. I made the decision 2013. Certainly, even at the time, I felt like. It was a big risk because of that trajectory of I needed to listen to this truth and and just do it or the sense of go big or go home. If I'm going to risk, let's just go all the way out. And you couldn't pick a bigger <laughs> platform in sharing story than a TED conference, but I did, and um, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, there was a woman named Gina Burnett who. Became my TED speech coach, and she guided me. I remember a couple of rehearsals, feeling like、oh, maybe she doesn't have it yet. But then, when we got my very first rehearsal on the main TED stage, the moment I stepped on that stage, something clicked. It's almost sorry. It's almost like Tiger Lily was next to me.、Um, All the muscle memory of everything that she taught me of how to project myself on stage, how to carry myself on stage, came back, and it, everything became so familiar. Yes, this is not a transpatient stage on the street in the Philippines, but different category, different stage. But just being on stage, and it's still something I use. You know, when I'm speaking in front of people, it's like, how do you create the sense of intimacy when you are standing and wanting to communicate something, and how do you do that? I guess years and years of training and being on stage, those things is just muscle memory for me. So all of those things came back. So once I was done with that rehearsal, I felt like I'm good here. I think this is the right decision. When the speech comes out and it becomes like a viral sensation, what did Tiger Lily think of what you had done? She was so proud. Even though she was living in the Philippines, I'm living in New York City. We we kept in contact. I've known her since I was 15 years old. But because I have to protect this story, she had to protect her story too. People in our pageant world, I I disappeared for for close a decade.、Um, I was the star in the pageant scene. I completely disappeared. She had to lie on my behalf and tell people that oh, because people somehow found out from other people that like is she modeling? Is she not? And she's just telling people that I'm just going to school. She had to protect my cover. So when I decided that I'm going to do this TED talk, I remember she said, "I now able to show your magazines in front of people because she had to put that in her closet herself so that people won't know what I'm doing." She said the word. You're back. You're back. You came back. 
been so lucky to have had Tiger Lily as, you know, my chosen mother, my trans mother. So when she said that I came back, I felt a sense of really who I am again. You know, I've, everything felt like it makes sense to really embody all of who I am that I have forgotten, right? I was so fully myself in the Philippines and I completely lost myself. And that TED Talk was a rebirth for me. The story of yours that's in the book that we've been playing out on this podcast, it's a series of vivid images. And yet of all the images you've recalled, all the ones you've painted through words and the passages you've read, that one that you just said about Tiger Lily putting those magazines, those features of you, that she had to put those in a closet and hide them from people that probably love her and by extension love you for the sake of maintaining your cover story. And that image, it's really hard to shake. And it's an image that I can't quite divorce from all the young people right now. And there are so, so many of them that feel like they too have to hide parts of themselves, either to their family, to their friends, or both, because of the unsafe environment that this country continues to perpetuate. And so, in all the progress we've made since your 2014 TED Talk, or your 2019 Playboy feature, in this moment we feel so very far from where I think you probably thought we were going to be in 2014. You have this quote where you said, For the next decade, I hope we've moved beyond the conversation where including a trans person in an advertising campaign will not be questioned or cause a headline. I hope it just becomes a norm. Well, we're basically at that decade. I, again, when they speak a lot, you know, with trans youth and even people from messaging me on social media, the thing that, that truly grounds me, it's not an immediate feel-good answer. In the stories, in the life that I've lived, it's the community that really helped me. My trans community in the Philippines, the trans community in San Francisco, is holding on to those people that truly loves you and accept you. And that grounds me. That makes me feel okay. I don't need to explain. I don't need to pretend to find acceptance and to advocate for acceptance in a space. Find that. Stick to those people that truly would, would see you and accept you where you don't need to fucking explain yourself. Sorry. You're allowed to curse on <sighs> me. It's, there's so much of this messaging, right, of us being seen as dangerous and and... It's as dire as, as it could be, you know. I wanted to keep going forward despite those journey that I've gone through. And hopefully for any young trans kid listening to this, I hope they find that. I don't know. how. There's no immediate answer. I cannot offer that immediate answer, but so hopefully they will keep moving forward. As you did. As I did. Keep moving forward.
I guess if there's one clear, tangible benefit of moving forward in 2023, it's that there are books like yours that are being published by a major American publisher that probably wasn't publishing these books when you were coming of age. And we started this conversation talking about how cultural visibility isn't everything, but it's also not nothing. And so as we leave, I thought we could read from a passage towards the end of Horse Barbie. Ooh, mm. I love this. I love this section. There is power in queer people recognizing and amplifying and documenting one another's voices, finding happiness among one another, and celebrating ourselves. That's why when young, queer, and trans people ask me about our nightmarish present, I don't tell them your problems will go away. I tell them that there is healing to be found in searching for joy, in processing your resentment for a world that rejects you, in accepting that all of being alive, the good, the bad, and the hateful, is part of a journey you don't get to do over. It will be difficult. It will be sad and have the scars to prove it. But we will have one another, and you will have you. Because no matter how scared you might feel, whether you're a trans kid or a 90-year-old grandma, you have one of the most powerful things a person can wield, a story. A story worth sharing, a story worth living. You have a place in this vast tapestry of interconnected experience, ecstasy and pain and romance, and dream-making all belong to you, just as much as they do to anyone else. Find your place among these feelings. Dig deeper, get hurt, and keep going. I am chapters that are still unwritten, and so are you. Well, how do you feel? Just feeling all warmth. I feel... Feel good to to share these feelings. Thank you, thank you for giving me this space. Well, you have, uh, according to the book, a whole lot of chapters to live out and write. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what those are and what they entail. And uh, we'll be here for the next one. This sounds good to me. <laughs> Gina Rosero, thank you for sharing. Thank you, Sam. that's our show if you enjoyed this episode be sure to leave us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks today to jasmine faustino nicole morano penguin random house and of course our guest gina rosero her new memoir horse barbie is available to purchase wherever you do your reading if you'd like to learn more about her and her work visit our show notes at talk easy pond If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Ocean Vuong, Trace Lissette, Elizabeth Gilbert, Padma Lakshmi, Min Jin Lee, 
Margot Jefferson, Rupi Kaur, and T.S. Madison. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Chinixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is CJ Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here this Sunday with actor Michael Shannon. Until then, stay safe and so long. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.